Part One, Chapter Four of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Public opinion on both sides. It is with something like amusement that we look back upon the fallacies entertained at that time by both North and South. That an intelligent people should, at the commencement of this war, have permitted themselves to be so duped passes all belief. Southern editors characterized their foe as Yankee riffraff, Hessians whom in fair encounter we could conquer three to one. The good marksmen, the fine riders, the daring and dash, were preeminently their own. So that if ever arrayed in solid flanks, their troops so distinguished might laugh to scorn anything like failure. Many formed their opinions of the coming contest from the Mexican War, where Southern volunteers were largely in the majority, and imagined that in military qualifications the northern army could not in any wise be more advanced than that of Mexico. As Taylor and Scott invariably routed forces vastly superior in numbers, it was deduced that the South would be equally successful in any actual encounter. That the war would be of any duration never entered the mind of anyone. Some were pleased to extend the time to six months, but it was generally imagined that the first battle, then rapidly approaching, would end the conflict. Men, women, and children were thoroughly sanguine of victory, while to doubt success was treason to the cause. A mental blindness pervaded the land. It is not surprising that the rank and file held such opinions, inasmuch as press and public speakers instilled them in their minds. A prominent speaker, an ex-governor of Virginia, in denouncing Helper's book on The Impending Crisis, said that nothing could conquer his hatred and prejudice against New England. Why, continued he, becoming excited, what is the reason of all these musterings, these warlike preparations? The southern army needs neither cannon nor rifle to beat back the hordes coming to desecrate this sacred soil. No, give the southern army but their slave whips, and they will send the Yankee hirelings flying back from whence they came. The press asserted that the southern soldiery would prove it irresistible, and argued that if a Baltimore mob could put to flight trained troops from Massachusetts, our volunteers, thoroughly armed and equipped, might defy any force. Have no fear, said a Richmond daily. Bob Toombs' prediction will yet prove true. Ere another year rolls round, he can, if he chooses, call the roll of his slaves in Fenuel Hall. Hence the volunteer, discussing in his barracks the future, expressed the honestly felt desire to meet the foe in combat, a foe he had come to despise, a foe he felt certain would never stand long enough to look him in the face. Imaginative battles were rather of the Iliad order, a few rounds, then a rush of cold steel, and all was over. It was agreed that Company A should go into action with each man carrying a revolver in his belt and a bowie knife in his bootleg. It would look decidedly warlike and unique, we thought, to see the handle protruding from the leggings. The pistols were intended for close quarters, and when each chamber should have done its deadly work, the bowie, conveniently carried between the teeth, would be expected to step in and carve up the foe. Thus we sat in earnest conclave, day after day, fighting our coming battles. We mapped out our program to suit our untutored fancy. The most harmless fellow amongst us, who would have hesitated to kill a fly, talked by the hour of bayonet charges, until the blood in our veins ran cold. There was one little fellow, a private named Hunter, who grew meditative as the discussions waxed more thrilling, and spent many a sleepless night communing with himself. 
This bowie-knife business might be a very good thing, he thought, for immense fellows like Raymond Fairfax, or for one of those big Irishmen, but for a sixteen-year-old soldier of ninety-seven pounds fighting weight it might not prove so very amusing after all. In a tight place, when cold steel was letting out blood, might it not be advisable, after having stood up to the fight like a man, to drop down on the ground for a little while and pretend to be dead? The big bowie-knife would hardly stop to stab such a little corpse. A boy in battle, he continued to reason, could discharge firearms with the biggest and do damage enough. Having this advantage besides, there would be so little of him to hit. But as for an advance, who would be hurt? The big blue? Not he. And making up his mind that until he had grown bigger, the question of cowardice would not be involved, and his anticipations of the future assumed a brighter aspect. One morning, Mills, a son of Clark Mills, the sculptor, and myself determined to run the blockade to Washington City. We kept our intention a profound secret, as discovery would have resulted in confinement in the guardroom for merely entertaining such an idea. Across the Potomac extended a rickety structure, known as the Long Bridge, guarded at either end by pickets, the one southern and the other northern. Travel across this thoroughfare had ceased, and visiting Washington by this route was not to be thought of. The steamers that plied between the two cities had discontinued their trips. Not only that, but a strict watch was kept up in Alexandria along the wharfs, even sail and rowboats having been interdicted. But where there's a will, there's a way. We donned citizens' dress and went to a certain farm three or four miles above Alexandria, of which I was the prospective owner, where a rowboat was kept and bribed the gardener, old Uncle Sandy, to row us to Washington, reaching there about noon. Then commenced our tour. How thick the bluecoats were! How many officers there were in the city! How elegant their uniforms! A general passed, his epaulets, buttons, and sword flashing in the sunshine, followed by a brilliant staff with orderlies in the rear. How many gaudily dressed women were on the avenue! What splendid bands! What soul-inspiring music! How martial looked the troops as they marched along the streets! As we watched them we noted their soldierly appearance, their perfect step, their fine drill, and the illusions of the hour faded away and the thought that flashed through both our minds was that it would take more than one rebel to whip three of these Yankees, and Mills exclaimed, Good Lord, let's hide! We wended our way to Willard's Hotel. The lobby was filled with an excited crowd. In the bar room the discussions were fiery. I'll tell you, gentlemen, said an officer to a group around him, that in two months from the word go we will march from the Potomac to the Rio Grande and drown the last damn rebel in the Gulf. Yes, said another, we want a bloody war, and if I had my way I would raise the black flag and hang every rebel caught with arms in his hands. How long will it be, inquired a citizen, before the long bridge is crossed? In a few days, at the furthest, responded an officer in Zouave uniform. So the talk drifted on and proved that they had no higher opinion of their foes than said foe had of them. We bought some northern newspapers and found the same tone pervading their columns, the same contempt for the easy task laid out, the same appeals to the passions of the hour as that which marked the journals of the South. They alluded to us sneeringly as chivalry, called us slave drivers and pampered minions, declared they wanted a sharp, sudden, bloody war endorsed Seward's prediction that the rebel would be put down within ninety days. In one paper was a speech made in Chicago by some public man, 
in which he said, My fellow citizens, I do not endorse President Lincoln's call for 75,000 men. He should have called on Illinois alone. This is an Illinois war. Let the President recall his troops, and let this state fight the slaveholders' rebellion, and I'll stake my life and all that is dear to me, that Illinois alone and unaided can conquer the South before the year is out. If the South had run mad, the North was demented, neither side considering the overwhelming proportions, the fearful, far-reaching consequences of the impending struggle. In such wise both parties boasted and raved before closing in deadly combat. End of Part 1 Chapter 4